Mumbrella's Publish Awards 2022 will be the biggest awards night for the publishing industry that celebrates and recognises the best and brightest across Australia. With 28 categories ranging across newsletters to podcasts, articles to magazines, business publications to custom publications, there is something for everyone. Being held on September 1 at Dalton House, Jones Bay Wharf, enter now for your chance to compete against the highest calibre of talent, agencies and brands across consumer, B2B and custom publishing. Entry submitted before the first entry deadline on June 3 will save you $100. Enter now at mumbrella.com.au slash publish awards. Hello and welcome back to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm your host, Callum Jaspin. Today, we are looking at the retail sector with some big moves happening across the industry this week involving both Coles and subsequently Woolies, involving also most of the market's major international agency players. Later on, I will be chatting to Will Hayward, CEO of independent publisher Private Media. Joining me on the smaller than usual panel today is reporter Khalila Welsh. Khalila, how are you doing today? I'm not too bad. Thanks, Cal. The weather's not great. No, it is not. It is not. Uh, It's nice to be up here in sunny Sydney. And speaking of private media, we have our valued, valued journalist, Anna McDonald, on here because it is her second last day at Mumbrella. Third last. We record on Wednesday. Third last day at Mumbrella. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very sadly, I'm saying my goodbyes. Um... Loved my time at Mumbrella, but it's time to time to move on. Uh, last day is Friday for anyone that's interested. Um, and I'll be going to private media's The Mandarin as a journalist. Which was why I said speaking of. Which is why why it was really planned. <laughs> well, Anna, we, we just we just wanted to get you on today to say our goodbyes. I know it's just Kalila and I here, but uh, it's been fabulous working with you. Thank you. That's very sweet of you to say. It's also been good working with you guys as well. Yeah, we'll miss. <laughs> On Monday evening, Mumbrella broke the news that WPP had been asked by Coles to withdraw from its RFP in search of a bespoke agency model as the brand became aware of an upcoming conflict that being or transpiring to be the group's production hub, Hogarth getting into bed with Crosstown rivals Woolies. Following that, we then broke the news that Coles had added Accenture Interactive to its list, really spicing things up along the way. Kalila, we were down to two and then very quickly back up to three in what is potentially the biggest pitch of the year, that being bringing in Accenture, who, you know, one that people might not expect when the initial um, the, the initial three invitees who were very much the traditional agency players were invited Good place to start before we get into the rest. Where do things stand now for Coles? Can you start by explaining one of the three left, the power of one model for publicists? They've been making quite a bit of noise about this, winning Johnson & Johnson with the the caveat the creative pitch is still going. Toyota, they've got quite a lot of their business now. They're afforded a position of having Michael Rubella oversee all of their group offering unlike their competitor at Omnicom. You spoke to them? Yeah, so I spoke to Rebello earlier. Um, He was pretty clear about the fact that the Power of One model is just one of the multiple bespoke offers that they have going, I guess. 
Um, but yeah, it is, it is the one that we've seen the most from at the moment. And basically what we see with that Parabon model is integrate is an integrated approach built for clients with complex requirements that stretch across the different, um, things that publicist is offering. So from marketing transformation to digital business transformation, um, basically they'll use this solution to design structures that offer end to end solutions for the client, um, each one has its own chief client officer and uh, has talent acquired from a number of publicist agencies. According to Rebello, publicist is uniquely positioned to offer this kind of solution because of their connected platform of talents, agencies and capabilities that are able to provide integrated solutions. Uh, thanks to the commercial structure with a single country P&L reporting line, um, like you mentioned. The structure has removed brand silos to promote greater collaboration between agencies, which is something the group started working towards seven years ago. The move towards end-to-end solutions was aided by the acquisitions of Epsilon and Sapient, which the group made with the foresight of the need for performance and digital transformation capabilities. One of the first clients that took up this solution with the group was Arnott's, who have actually just released some new work with the, their Power of One agency, The Neighbourhood, this week. The group was first appointed to handle their creative media and PR in 2018, and the model eventually evolved into the neighborhood, which encompasses talent from publicist agencies Sachi and Sachi, Spark Foundry, Heard MSL, Digitas, Arc, and Prodigious. Another recent convert to the power of one model is Johnson & Johnson, as you mentioned, who shifted their media, data, and digital to publicist group in December 2021, involving talent from agencies like Spark Foundry, Digitas, Sachi and Sachi, Wellness and Arc. Notably, the creative account initially remained with DDB. It is now pitching at the moment, but obviously it means that there might be another group involved uh, with Johnson and Johnson. But they did say that in these kind of instances where there are third-party agencies involved in the work for a brand, basically what happens is that external agency will, will kind of plug in to the power of one model, kind of, I guess, sitting on the outside, but involved, you know, fairly um, internally in terms of the collaboration um, and integration with other agencies. Yeah. I mean, then on the other hand, you've got Omnicom, the other kind of traditional uh, holding group in the equation. Chatter is kind of pushing them towards being the front runner now that WPP uh, has obviously dropped out. Um, they already house some of the creative. Uh, OMD won its media business just over five years ago, which in, I guess, relative terms for a client this size is not all that long ago. Um, Chip, also part of Omnicom-aligned Clemenger Group, handles probably the biggest integrated account in the country with Samsung. Could we see them stick with Omnicom, but I guess shake things up and maybe bring Chep into play a little bit more? Yeah, so as you mentioned, they've already got TBWA and DDB on the incumbent Coles roster, those two being added to the list alongside Big Red two years ago. If they did want a complete bespoke model, speaking to a few Mumbrella sources, some have thrown out the idea that Omnicon may look to use CHEP as the base for their approach, then working with OMD on buying capabilities. CHEP, as you mentioned, won Samsung's digital account in 2019 then winning everything else pretty much, media creative platform, data, customer experience, and social at the start of 2020. 
with an agency roughly 400 people strong and already running a client the size of Samsung, you'd think they'd probably be in with a pretty decent shot scale-wise. And also with OMD winning the account only in 2016, it might be a little bit soon to move again um, with an account that size. There's quite a bit of internal fragmentation within Omnicon. While Publicis has that internal unification under the leadership of Rebello, Though Omnicon does have that TMX model for their client Mercedes-Benz. There, there isn't a single, uh, I guess, CEO of sorts across the the rest of the Omnicon business in Australia. They've obviously got Omnicon Media Group uh, under Peter Horgan there. The, the, I think the, the media part of this pitch will probably be the, potentially the biggest factor, um, you know, as I, as I understand it. These media accounts of this scale... It, Moving that is essentially setting up an agency with an ag- within another agency. You know, I spoke to an agency exec who'd previously been involved in both uh, Woolies and Coles pitches. And you know, when you move a, a client the size of Coles, you know, the Woolies account also, I think, in 2020 when it uh, stayed with um, Dentsu, that was you know within everything is about 150 million, which is. Um, well, I think the Coles one was about 15 new staff they had to hire just to service that account. Finally, Accenture Interactive. This is the joker in the pack. Uh, the line I got out of Coles initially was that the invite was directly to Accenture Interactive, part of Accenture at a group level, but then Creative Shop, the monkeys being a part of that setup. Um, pretty interesting this whole, I guess, the way it's playing out and, you know, inviting WPP, doing a bit more digging, asking them to basically leave and then adding another one after that. It's a little bit of a confusing approach, whether or not this is a, a cover or PR line to basically get forward the fact that they're keen on the monkeys and then adding whatever on that would be is a little bit murky uh, and Accenture Interactive as, uh, I guess, uh, as usual, they've got their f- f- their lips pretty firmly closed on this one. So if, so if it is the monkeys that they want, how does that work with the rest of the bespoke package? Well, I guess th- as it was sort of put to me, uh, it, it, it is sort of a group line, as I kind of said about getting the monkey's foot in the door. It has been made pretty public a couple of years ago that Accenture Interactive have set up some sort of media buying capabilities uh, you know, I, I put to them about their media auditing business, which um, as, as far as I'm aware, they've shut down because that would potentially cause some conflicts. Uh, they do have some of those capabilities, although as uh, I think most people are kind of um, chatter, chittering about would, would be that they would have to maybe make a purchase somewhere along the line to build that out, you know. A few names have been thrown out there. Some of the some of the big ones in Australia, the Indies, Nuns, your Atomics, Rival, things like that, uh, because they don't actually have any offline media purchasing power. Again, one other avenue could be, you know, we, we have kind of very well documented the build out of Coles Media um, in the retail media space. They have some pretty big agency or ex-agency talent there, Paul Brooks, Sam Hegg, another one, Bethany Blanchard, uh, recently coming across from Cara. You'd think maybe 
all of those being ex-Cara who did at the time hold Woolies, they have pretty serious experience handling that account, also kind of being involved or being at an arm's length, as Brooks described it to me in a recent story, in the setting up of Woolies Retail Media Shop Cartology. Um, I guess also, you know, you could you could say that they need to build out some of that data and tech offering, but you'd think a consultancy the size of Accenture, they probably have the the capability to 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 build that out. Accenture would probably be the the route if you if you you know they're thinking they wanted to take things further in house, um, but again, you know. You, it just makes you think if if this was the plan for Coles, which is a clearly different route than what you would take with Omnicom or with Publicis, then why were Accenture Interactive invited late to the party? So I guess more generally for Coles, uh, Ronson has been at the brand now for three years. She came in with some pretty big expectations from her time as CMO at Tourism Australia. There is a bit of a connection there, uh, maybe a stretch, but, you know, one one there with the Accenture link. Yeah, so David Droger, who is quite well known in Aussie Adland, he's the global CEO of Accenture Interactive um, and formerly CEO of Droger 5. He and Ronson go back uh, a little bit when they worked together on a big Tourism Australia campaign about five or six years ago. Yeah, so obviously a bit of a connection there. You know, that is a global role, not directly in Australia, but, you know, it's good to good to have in there. Um, yeah, so we, we will see on that one. It is not an unrealistic thing or uh, maybe thought to think that Coles might look at in-housing some of its media capabilities, and this is something that I asked, um, you know, both the Coles lot and uh, and Cartology's Mike Tyquin in a in a feature this week. You can find that on the website. Um, another interesting part that came out of this story uh, was in the wording of Coles' response. So we knew that WPB had been asked to pull out due to a conflict, uh, that being some work between Hogarth. Um, production arm of WPP and Woolies. But reading a little bit more into Colds' response and hearing a few things here and there, uh, it may seem like it's a little bit more than first expected. So the statement read, we became aware of a future conflict that would prevent the agency working on the account. Now, Woolies Group subsidiaries, Big W and Dammo, who's already now working with Hogarth. So I guess the question is what could be on the way next? Uh, it could be quite a bit more. Um, WPP deciding to maybe prefer or preference the the Hogarth production work uh, over one of the biggest, or if not the biggest, pitch of the year is no small thing. I, I guess um, the the suggestion would be that, and you know, you hear a bit of chatter as well, that WPP are pretty confident um, over what might be coming later on in the year with, uh, you know, that other retail giant Woolworths. It's obviously a big risk to put all their eggs in the Woolworths basket. Excuse the, the pun mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah. And again, you'd probably, you'd probably think Dentsu will be bracing for a pretty big 
fight later this year. You know, so I, I believe the the term uh, an industry exec threw to me was they'll throw the kitchen sink at it, considering it is about probably a quarter of Dentsu's total uh, billings or around about there. You know, it does put pressure back on Group M. Woolies, again, sort of similar to what we were discussing with Coles there. They set up Woolies at DAN, uh, which was Densio Edges Network, back in 2018 and have quietly been building up since then, setting up all of its marketing in an innovation hub in Surrey Hills um, a couple of years ago. MNC Saatchi currently has the creative on that. Um, whether or not that will be potentially up for grabs, we don't currently know at this stage. As far as M and Saatchi are aware, uh, it seems like nothing has changed into regard with their relationship with Woolies and has no plan to. Group M or WPP wouldn't really say much on the record, uh, but a few sources have suggested that they're pretty quietly confident about things uh, and you may, you know, very much reading, over-reading into uh, what's happening here. You would maybe suggest that with uh, choosing their production work. The Woolies contract uh, currently is, which is on a two-year contract, is up with Dentsu, uh, and I think about October, November, as far as I'm aware. Um, so sh- we'll see in the coming months if there is a pitch or not or what's happening there. Again, they are a couple of years ahead of Coles with Cartology. Um, Coles Media very much being in its embryonic stage at the moment. So whether or not they decide to also take things Potentially a little further in-house will be very much interesting to see. Um, you'd think if they did that, they'd, they'd, they'd keep someone on probably uh, along the lines of their current agency in some capacity in the in the interim. Certainly an interesting and heated one with Coles throwing their rivals under the bus uh, of sorts there, but mm-hmm. one to keep an eye on uh, for this year. Coming up next, private media's Will Hayward. Will Hayward, CEO of Private Media, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Ken. I'm excited to be here. Very happy to have you here. So I guess a good starting point would be taking us through a bit of the history of Private Media to where we are to date. You were obviously appointed CEO just over a year ago, as Private Media being the publisher of Crikey, Smart Company and The Mandarin. Yeah, so as you say, private media um, has has a fairly long and illustrious history. Um, We were founded by Eric Beecher almost two decades ago, um, and we have owned and operated a number of media brands over that time. Um, Right now, as you say, we have Crikey, uh, which is a news opinion and insight brand. Uh, It's about 95% funded by its readers. Uh, We have the Mandarin, which exists to help the uh, Australian public sector and supporting organizations get the best possible outcomes for Australia. And then we have Smart Company, which champions growth businesses and gives them the news, tools and insights to survive and thrive, or at least that's what we we write on the slides that we send out. Um, uh, It's a great company. I mean, we've been around for a long time. The the thing that's been consistent over our entire history is um, a a real commitment to journalism. a real commitment to our readers and doing the best possible job for them that we can do. Um, what's perhaps changed over the last couple of years um, is we have worked extraordinarily hard at scaling the organization. Um, so if you'll forgive me from um, 
quite a few facts and figures. Uh, we have um, just come to the end of our eighth consecutive quarter of record revenue. Uh, we have more than, well, sorry, we are approaching treble the crikey subscribers that we had two years ago. Um, uh, smart company, we've launched a paid product, the Mandarin. Uh, uh, we have a paid product as well, which is more than doubled and, and advertising across all, all the brands is going really well. Um, so it's a great company. I mean, all of those successes are really a product of the extraordinary, extraordinarily talented and hardworking staff that we have. Um, there are many ways to define what private media is. Uh, but I think first and foremost, we are a, a company that does its very best to attract the best possible talent in the market. Um, and then uh, give them the space needed to do the best work of their career. And we um, that's, that's always a work in progress, but I think we're doing fairly well at that so far. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was going to ask you about some of those figures because, you know, reading up, sure. uh, I, I looked at uh, your appointment or your promotion. That was, uh, I think you mentioned at the time, uh, crikey subscriptions were up 80% year on year. You mentioned some of those reasons there. Were, was it a focus of yours when you came to Crikey to, to, or were you given the assignment to really kind of transition that business model? Um, I mean, the only assignment from Eric, who is a, um, I've had the good fortune of working for a number of um, entrepreneur owners of businesses. Um, and Eric's only assignment to me is to sort of protect the business and grow it. Um, so uh, he and I speak regularly every week. We go into a huge amount of detail about the various things that we're thinking about and the various things that we're doing. Um, but but really the only guidance from Eric or the only sort of um, um, uh, command from Eric is, is to uh, maintain the integrity of the journalism and get it in front of more people and make it as sustainable as possible. Um, the strategy that we, we built... Um, this predates me becoming CEO, but but obviously has continued through the the, the first year and a half of my tenure. Um, really has been um, to uh, to grow the three brands. Um, that, that sounds very kind of simple, but um, uh, the more readers we have, whether they pay us or not, um, uh, the more um, we can make from advertising. Um, uh, the more readers we have, the more we can uh, get them to sign up for our free products. Um, and then once they're signed up to our free products, uh, the more we can convert them to being paid customers. Um, and then ultimately uh, try to extend their lifetime value, uh, their yield and all those sorts of metrics. Now, that all sounds very dry and commercial, um, but revenue is the lifeblood of our, our journalism. Um, what what has changed is that, as I said before, we have a long, illustrious uh, history of doing fantastic journalism that we are very, very proud of. And we continue that today. We have Amber Schultz in Romania right now, um, reporting on the unfolding humanitarian crisis. We've had David Hardacre in the last couple of years um, reporting on the, forgive my pun, the sins of the Hillsong um, organization. Uh, we have Melissa Code reporting on the APS. We have the smart company team doing all the work they're doing. And that really is the center of our, of our company um, spiritually and commercially, um, the more we invest in editorial, the more great editors we bring in, um, the lower it costs, the, the less it costs us to to get people on our various websites. Um, the easier it is to convert them to giving us their details. Um, the lower or the higher yield we can extract from them, um, and the more money we can make from advertising. So it is very much a sort of 
circular system, but the, the, the key metric really is the size of the brands, um, which is fueled by the, uh, the the quality of the journalism is probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, uh, I've, I've read that you've spoken previously about placing a big emphasis um, on talent and investing in, I guess, um, ambitious specialists, I think. Sure. The term. I've kind of seen, yeah. is, is that, is that a, a, you know, you spoke about a sort of circular system there. Does that, I guess, pay dividends in only being able to really attract that kind of really quality journalistic talent when you have that pedigree in doing it? And is that potentially a downfall for some other publications? Yeah, I mean, we talk every day about how good a job we are doing of hiring amazing talent and then giving them, as I said before, the space they need to do the best work of their career. Um, we have hired, uh, recently hired a COO called I Maudsley, who was hoping to join us today, but unfortunately she uh, got waylaid by COVID. Um, uh, but, um, I mean, strategy is, is, is many things. Um, uh, you can build decks that variously talk about product diversification, improving yield, uh, the emphasis of advertising over subs, all those sorts of things. Um, when it comes down to it, none of that is achievable without extraordinarily high talent density. Talent density is a, a, a phrase from Reed Hastings, CEO of Netflix, um, who argues that it's not just having amazing people in the company, it's having uh, phenomenally talented and motivated people in the company um, and making sure that everywhere they look, they see people like them. Um, so that really is when we do these, these big slide decks, which we're sort of every quarter or, or, or half we're working on um, it, at some point it condenses down to that. Like, do we have the best team, which I think we do. Um, are we doing enough to support them, which is a constant um work in progress and I think there is much more that we should be doing but we've certainly achieved a, a lot over the last 12-24 months um, and who else should we be adding to the team um, a key sort of strategic change that we've made is uh, we used to decide what strategy we wanted to execute and then go out and hire people to fulfill that strategy um, I now think and this sounds um, maybe a little bit reckless so um, any investors should probably tune out here um, but, but now we, we really focus on the talent above all else, like find amazing people. And of course, I mean, like an amazing mechanic wouldn't do a great deal for private media. Um, but as, as long as you can see um, them adding value to the org, uh, um, and if you have built an organization that is sustainable and profitable and working well already, you will always have enough space and time for them to have a significant impact. Um, so yeah, we are we are absolutely obsessed with talent, talent density, um, and, and what that means in its various iterations. I spoke to um, Genevieve Jacobs the other week, who's the editor of Region Media. Yes, she mentioned that I think the way she referred to the company now, and this is I, I find it really interesting looking at um, different, I guess, publishers business models at the moment. She was kind of referring to Region as sort of almost a tech company um, at the same time as being a, a media organization. Do you think there is a sort of a silver bullet now in terms of a model that's successful or is it all about having different models based on, I guess, situation and uh, the, the product that each 
outlet offers? I think um, I think there's many ways to answer that question. Um, quite clearly, uh, there is a um, so, so first of all, no, like I don't think there's a definitive solution to how you can build a really sustainable media company that is growing. Um, Brian Morrissey, who's the former editor of Digiday, said the best revenue stream is lots. Um, and I agree with that. Like advertising is super high margin. And we, uh, as a corporate entity, we love advertising. Um, it's also cyclical and can totally collapse uh, through no sort of um, no mistake of the company. Um, reader revenue is fantastic because it's uh, super even and the accrual builds slowly over time. And we, we've had a lot of success with that. Um, uh, as we continue planning for next year, we want to add more revenue streams. And so I, I think revenue diversification is is sort of the model. Like it's good to have revenue from lots of places. Um, in terms of um, uh, being a digital org, I think the key thing that most media companies miss is the power of softly felt improvements to your company that compound aggressively over time. Um, so one of the big investments that we've made over the last six months is we've doubled the size of our engineering team. We have hired, started hiring a product team um, and we've hired, they haven't started yet, um, a chief growth officer. A lot of the things that those individuals I just listed work on um, will have almost no impact on the following month, um, a tiny impact on the next quarter, uh, a moderate impact on the next half, um, and a pretty sizable impact on the following year, and a, hopefully a massive one sort of two years out. And it's a real test of um, uh, how good an organization you've built Um whether you can make those investments and see them pay off over a long time. So, I mean, I guess the summary is most media orgs, certainly ones that I've worked for, um, are often looking for the quick fix that will pay off next month, next quarter. Um, we, we love those things. I mean, we we, um, we see that happen with advertising all the time, and, and we continue to invest in editorial initiatives that, that totally blow up our subs figures um, because we've landed some massive scoop. But I, having the confidence to to know that the investment that you're making is not going to show up immediately, but exactly, long exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I listened to an interview with um, I forget his name. He's the founder and CEO of Pinterest, and he was quoted as saying that he thinks they spend about a million dollars on engineering fees on the login page every day. Now, I, I wonder how many companies, how many media companies, are that committed to their login page. We are not, like we should be, um, but we're certainly a lot more committed than we were. 12 months ago. Speaking of investments, a couple of years ago, I think 2019, Private Media mm -hmm. came out with um, some significant investment in INQ, sure. the in investigative yes. journalism. Is, is that still running? Uh, so we folded Inc. into uh, the wider Craker team. Inc. was an experiment. Um, uh, so the thesis was a, um, a big bet on investigative reporting. I mean, I, I don't know if this slide exists, but if, if you were to, to sort of condense the strategy at the time, which was before my time, it would mm -hmm. have been um, a sizable investment. Investigative journalism will pay off within a short time frame. 
and we have subsequently discovered that's not true. Um, investigative journalism is very, very hard. Um, mm -hmm. I compare it to venture capital. Um, like you throw a huge ton of resources at a bunch of things and almost none of them pay off. And periodically you build a Facebook and it like totally yeah. explodes. Um, we continue to do that. Uh, I already mentioned David Hardacre's working uh, work on Hillsong, um, uh, the work Amber's doing in Romania right now. Uh, these are all the things that are kind of front of mind right now. Um, but uh, Inc. is kind of a separate entity with a separate P&L and a separate brand and a separate team. That's, um, that was a gamble that didn't work. Uh, yeah. Though I would say that um, within six months, I mean, if, if, if the size of our total editorial investment in Crikey is not already larger than it was during the height of Inc., um, it certainly will be within, whatever, three, six months. So... I guess moving on, there's 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 quite a few sections that we I guess directions we could go in now. Um, recently, there's been a big focus from independent publishers uh, on the digital platforms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Private media ha does, if I'm correct, have deals with Facebook and Google from from last year. Um, there, there, there are you know we had Nick Shelton on from Broad Broadsheet Media the other week talking about a recent um, campaign that indie publishers yes. are running against yes. Meta. Yes. Um, but some at the same time are sort of uh, I guess scared to come out and speak against the giants because they still have hopes that they will at some point find an agreement. What, what do you think is the digital platform's responsibility in this area? <clears throat> so. I mean, we have been very consistent on this. Um, editorially um, and commercially, we never felt um, the the deals made sense. Um, uh, you could find 100 articles on Crikey, let's say on the Mandarin and Smart Company, certainly 100 articles on, on Crikey that decried the news media bargaining code as a shakedown by News Corp. Um, uh, of the, uh, the platforms. I mean, I happened to work for Dow Jones, forgive me for my sins, uh, many years ago. And I, I remember Robert Thompson in probably 2000 and whatever, 12 probably, sort of talking about the fact that like one day Rupert was going to get Facebook and Google to pay. Um, yeah. uh, I don't think they make a great deal of sense. Um, I actually uh, seem to disagree with most people and think that the Google and Facebook have, have actually acted with a fair amount of integrity on the issue. Um, all our meetings with them have been incredibly constructive. And I'm not just saying that because we have deals with both of them. Um, I think they have tried to support journalism. They have certainly done a lot to support us. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, look, I think the government has uh, forced Google and Facebook, Google and Meta's uh, hand uh, to do something that's had a big distorting impact on the media sector in Australia. Uh, I have a huge amount of sympathy for um, the likes of Broadsheet, who have a fantastic product and a very good business um, that now operates in a extremely distorted market um, where some of their competitors um, are benefiting from significant capital investments as a result of the bargaining code. Um, I would also add that I think that um, supporting... Like what private media does is extremely hard um, uh, and 
very risky. Um, like we put journalists on stories over a long period of time. And as I said already, sometimes they don't pay off. And that is a financial gamble that we make. Um, and we had made our company profitable pre-bargaining code. Um, and it, it does have this, as I said already, this big sort of distorting impact. When you've worked so hard to turn your business into a sustainable thing, you then have this massive influx of capital. All of your competitors have significantly more. Um, uh, and so, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think it's great. But um, I guess that comes down to, you know, some of those questions about, uh, you know, what is public service journalism? What, what comes under the definition of those, those agreements? Yeah, I mean, I, I am hugely sympathetic towards the publishers um, uh, who um, didn't benefit from it. Um, uh, I, I probably should be care- fairly careful what I say. I, like, I think some of them are like Broadsheet makes meaningful investments into the arts and culture sector in Australia. So, like, I feel very sorry f- for the um, the way this has played out for them. Some of the other um, entities, uh, I don't know to what extent they are doing journalism. Um, so, again, like, I mean, but why should I be thinking about this? Why should anyone be thinking about it? Um, I, I think that uh, journalism is a very hard business. Um, I don't think the government should be making investments. into. I don't think the government, I do think the government should support journalism better. I'm not sure if the way they have done it is the best way. Yeah, I, I mean, interestingly, another another point that came up with um, Genevieve Jacobs the other week was she she mentioned that she she doesn't think in the long run that government subsidies and grants and I guess relying on those digital platforms is potentially healthy for the ecosystem. Do you think that at some point there, or maybe do you expect at some point that any of these uh, tech platforms are designated under the bargaining code? Um, you know, the arguments have been made that they, you know, have had the chance to agree deals. Meta now refusing to come back to the table. We've obviously covered a lot of that off there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't have a hugely informed perspective on that. Like, it's no one thought it would play out the way it has done to date. Um, so, kind of forecasting the way it will in the future, I think, is probably uh, like unlikely to be accurate. So. I guess more generally about the the state of the Australian media industry. You mentioned uh, earlier one of your roles at Dow Jones. You've you've had a history with a few big publishers in the UK with yes. BuzzFeed, the Wall Street Journal, and uh, Joe Media, the Economist. Do you think there are any lessons to be learned from looking overseas, or maybe is Australia behind in any facets that you think really need to be caught up on? That's a good question. Um, I think there are some sort of clearly identifiable um, functions that are probably undervalued in Australia, um, slightly better valued in the UK and uh, appropriately valued in the States. Um, The the way I have sometimes thought about this is... um, um sort of specialization so uh, i think i said to you over coffee if you look at the roles that most australian media companies are hiring for um 
I know what those roles are. Like you, you can read it and pretty quickly tell what the role is. And it's a seller, it's a content person, it's a journalist. Like these are all sort of pretty self-explanatory roles. Um, I think in the States, the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post and Vox, probably in order of this, um, increasingly realize that, that what they are trying to do is very hard and requires fairly extreme specialism. And as they get bigger and bigger, they are afforded operating leverage to invest in very specific hires that sort of um, referencing what I described earlier, you you don't feel immediately, but compound very aggressively over time. Um, And so when you look at the New York Times, I mean, I haven't looked for a couple of months, but I do look periodically, I think two months ago they had something like 76 open headcount for journalists and something like 140 for product and tech people. And of those 140, and I'm I'm a very low bar on this, but I didn't know what 50% did. Like you read the job description and it is a product role that is extremely specialized. Um, and I think the UK is a little bit better than that. So you, you sort of look at what some of the bigger orgs are doing in the UK and it, and it is – uh, if the sort of spectrum is from well-intentioned generalist all the way through to highly technical product dev tech people, um, uh, I think the UK is uh, sort of further along on that spectrum. And I think Australia, like I said, is, is probably still fairly nascent on that journey. Um, I don't think Australian media companies have quite yet realized the power of yeah. um, product. I mean, maybe we will you know, with uh, the borders reopening, have have some of those um, experienced heads coming in. I guess from yeah, a – from... oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I mean, I, I think um, like we're fortunate enough to have Adam Schwab on our board. Um, uh, not that I've seen his board packs, but like I suspect Adam's board pack like uh, is pretty, to people like me, extremely interesting uh, to people who don't find – who aren't massive nerds. Um uh, extremely boring and we'll talk a lot about like customer acquisition costs and lifetime value and churn and um, uh, all those sorts of things and I don't know how many media companies in Australia are really thinking about those uh, and also like a lot of media companies in Australia really are just sort of ad agencies they they have an audience and they're just trying to flog that audience to advertisers whereas um, again the New York Times is a extremely on the editorial side obviously like an incredible journalistic outfit um, on the commercial side, again, as I said, an extremely product and audience-centric organization. I guess on the other hand, is there, obviously, aside from private media, is there an organization which you've kind of pinpointed as thinking, God, I, I, they're doing a good job? Um, I think, I don't know if I should say this, um, like, I don't think it, people would expect me to be a fan of News Corp. Um, I uh, editorially think they could be better. Um, it's probably the most diplomatic way I will put it. Um, but I, I think they're on a journey and I think they're getting better. Like I, I think they are more technical and more product and more audience-centric than they were. Um, and obviously some of the big listed businesses are about – I mean, Nine is, is pretty good um, – uh, again, the sort of weird abstract measure is like, look at their jobs page, see what they're hiring for, how many of those roles are highly technical and specialized. I guess um, 
edit speaking editorially, th- there is potentially an avenue of journalism which Crikey has had its success over mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. over the previous years. Maybe uh, has enjoyed the fruits of the the Morrison government and its reporting mm-hmm. with the federal election. On the on the doorstep, going to be cold this week. Do you think? I guess strictly from a from a business perspective, uh, is it bad news for Crikey if Labor wins? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. We have to. I mean, I'm speaking super openly, just between you and I, obviously. Um, uh, like we've definitely thought about it. Um, I, I mean, again, there are sort of there's research and data points you could reach for that would suggest that would be. Um, uh, bad for uh, publications whose audience generally aren't a fan of the Liberal government. Um, I mean, um, uh, there is lots of research to show that one of the big drivers of sharing, which is one of the main ways of getting your content out to more people, is sort of outrage and anger. Um, We try to um, report very fairly on the Liberal government um, and not engage outrage unless it's entirely uh, appropriate. Um, As regards what happens with Labour, I mean, look, this is me speaking personally now. Um, I mean, those sorts of questions are probably better say for Peter Frey, who's our editor-in-chief. But on a personal level, I think if the Labour government do win, there is a good chance they will win by a considerable margin. Um, And I think we could see a... um, serious sort of um, remodeling of the Australian state. Um, uh, For me personally, I think that will be a very good thing. Um, And uh, I think Crikey will um, not only do a great job of uh, reporting on it, but holding the Labour government to exactly the same standard that we have held the Liberal government to. Um, Yeah. And just finally, well, we, you know, we, we spoke quite a bit about um, private media's journey over the last couple of years. You've had yes. eight quarters of growth. If there was one thing maybe that you could highlight, which has been the, the biggest struggle um, during that time, what, what would you say that would be? Uh, I mean, it's pretty, uh, like, easy. Um, uh, sorry to sound like a scratch record, but it's talent. Um, like, we are... I want to stress again, like we have been on a journey over the last two years. Two years ago, we always thought about next month. Um, Now we're thinking about uh, two years ahead. Um, And that security um, of our business model uh, allows us to to hire fairly aggressively. Um, If if we could find, like we plan to grow headcount by about 50% over the next 12 months. Um, the reason why it's 50%, not hundred percent is because I don't think we'll be able to find sufficient people that we think are excellent. Um, so if I'm allowed one cheeky plug, it would be, uh, to anyone who's listening to this, who works in media and, um, not only has a great deal of faith in their, um, their skills, but also wants to come work at a company that in my opinion is making a real positive contribution to Australia. Um, then, uh, Callum has my number. So please do get in touch. <laughs> Well, well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks so much, Callum. That's it for another week on the Mumbrella Cast. Please make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If there is a rating you can offer us, please give us a good one if you like what you hear. And check the website for more content and updates. Kalila, thank you very much for joining me. 
It's a pleasure as always. And we'll be back next week.